If you turn to the 14th chapter of the book of Romans, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read the first 12 verses and then uh, we'll come back and look at them in a minute. Be sure and get, get this is so, maybe so practical and helpful that you'll find what you need tonight. Now, except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions, one man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. He's a vegetarian. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another, another regards each day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For no one of us, not one of us, lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. Here's the, the, this is why he died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all shall stand before the judgment seat of God, the Bema. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now the taboos in Paul's day, that is the, the, uh, the no-nos, we might say, that young people would say in Paul's day, the taboos were not dancing and you know, playing cards and, and uh, playing poker, chewing tobacco, going with girls that do. That... that, that these were not the questionable issues that divided century one churches. The issues that divided century one churches were these, eating and keeping Saturday sacred. Those were the taboos, believe it or not. Now, wherever you have somebody who practices religion, you're going to have taboos, list of no-no, so to speak. And wherever taboos are practiced, people of another generation or another section of the country think they're weird. You ever notice that? For example, in the deep south, you don't, you know, it's, it's not right to have mixed bathing. You've you heard that term. Eh? Now, you might say, well, of course, you know, 
you don't, boys and girls don't bathe. Well, it's not even, it's not even bathing, really. It's mixed swimming. Boys and girls don't swim together. Sound like Falls Creek? <laughs> so down in the deep south, boys and girls, men and women, don't swim together if you're, you know, in, in the church, Christians. If you're from the southwest and you're a brother or a sister and you go to Kentucky, it might surprise you after the service if the pastor lights up a big old cigar. I mean, that's a taboo in the southwest, but not in tobacco country. I mean, that's just fine, you see. And if you grew up in Germany and were members of a Lutheran church in Germany, you might go to a church function and beer would be served. And you just kind of gasp at that and suck air. But that, you know, I mean, that's, that's no problem. And some of the missionaries say that over in some parts of Africa that one of the biggest problems they have with the gospel is that there might be a man who has two or three wives and he loves them all. And when he becomes a Christian, he, can, he finds out he's to have only one wife. He, he doesn't know which one to give up, you see. I mean, it's perfectly acceptable in some cultures to do that. And there are some women who are condemned if they use makeup. Most of the time, condemned by those who should you know, use makeup. But there are some Christians who feel like that you just can't be spiritual if you use makeup or if you wear slacks to church or sandals so that your toes are exposed. I mean, aren't people weird? And if you're headed to Ada tomorrow and you come to a certain part of the country between here and Ada, you might see some people riding in buggies down the highway and they have on these long, uh, dark, have this long, dark attire and, and these big hats and, and they're Mennonites. And they don't believe in the modern conveniences and they believe that these are things of the world. And we look at those folks and we, we say, man, those people are strange because wherever you have people practicing their religion, you're going to have taboos that people, some people in another generation and another section of country think are weird. Leslie Finn, Flynn has a great little book in, in, entitled Great Church Fights. And he tells about this. He says, quote, A group of theologians were discussing, discussing predestination and free will. When the argument became heated, the dissidents split into two groups. One, able, one man, unable to make up his mind which group to join, slipped into the predestination crowd. When challenged as to why he was there, he said, I came of my own free will. Free will, they cried. You can't join us. He returned to the opposing group, met the same challenge. What are you doing here? I was sent here, he said. Get out, they stormed. You can't join us unless you come of your own free will. I suppose that the argument, the fact, can go on and on. I have a feeling that if Jesus Christ came into the, to a large group of people, the only people in the group who would feel uncomfortable with his presence would be the religious folks. Now you can get a sinner who's up to his eyeballs in sin, and he wasn't uncomfortable around Jesus. As a matter of fact, one of the most remarkable things was that he attracted that kind of people. And they found a love and an acceptance in Jesus they found nowhere else, and they just gravitated to him. And they loved him, and he was called a glutton and a wine-bibber and a friend of sinners. And the person who walks with God every day and talks with God every day, he's not uncomfortable in the presence of the Lord. He longs to have his presence. 
but the individual who lives by his list of do's and don'ts is not going to feel comfortable with Jesus. I mean, what list of taboos, of do's and don'ts does Jesus fit? Should I go to the movies on Sunday? Is it all right to drink a glass of wine after meal? Do I watch television? Or should I arrange my life for others? That's the question. That's the issue of this text. Now, with your, book, your worksheet, look at this. The background is easy. The background is this. In verse 2, it's not complicated. You had some who were meat eaters. Now, these were primarily uh, Gentile Christians. Now, remember this. Let me say this right up front, that what we're talking about here, these are all, we're talking about Christians here. We're talking about people within the church. And you had those who were Gentile Christians who had no problem with eating meat, but you had some Jews who had a problem eating meat. And they felt like that they were to carry on these dietary laws that Moses gave to the Jew in the wilderness and these dietary laws were so restrictive and they wouldn't eat meat because they were afraid of violating those dietary laws. They just became ve vegetarians. So you have meat eaters and you have vegetarians. And there was a second, another group, they were the day observers. You had some within the church who considered some days to be supremely sacred and were to be observed with a rigid, with, uh, you know, as supremely sacred. And then you had some within the church who, who um, just treated every day as though, you know, like any other day. So you had meat eaters and vegetarians, and you had day observers, and you had those who treated every day the same. Now the problem with it was that there is always a critical reaction to how other people observe, practice their religion. For example, you had some, he said, who didn't have any problem with eating meat. They, were, they lived in the liberty of their Christian faith. They didn't have any rules. And they believed that you live your Christian life on the basis of it's a matter between you and God and you determine what was right for you as you understood the Scripture. And they didn't have any problem with eating meat. And they didn't have any problem with the person that ate meat. Ate meat. Here, was their, here was their problem. Was they looked with contempt upon those who did not eat meat. And they fought like this. Does this sound like anybody you know? They looked with content. The word is despise, really. If you look at that passage again, they despised those who didn't have that liberty. And they fought like this. I just can't stand that holier-than-thou guy, that holier-than-thou young person. He thinks he's so self-righteous, he's so pious. I just can't stand him, that, that fanatic. And on the other hand, there was this critical reaction that, result, that was the result of those who did not eat meat, and it was that they judged those who did. And they passed judgment on them, and this is the way they fought. Listen, they can't be spiritual. They can't, be, they can't walk with God and have that kind of activity, that kind of thing going on in their life, and so they went around judging others. Sound like anybody you know? And what, it made, what made it more complicated was that in that day they had these temples erected to pagan idols, pagan gods. And these folks would come in, bring their sacrifices, offer them on the altar. 
And part of that sacrifice would be consumed on the altar, but some of it didn't, and they took that meat and would sell it. It was a bargain. I mean, you could get a porterhouse steak, you could get a ribeye, I mean, for 10 cents a pound. That had been, you know, the leftovers that were sacrificed on these pagan altars. So here comes this guy. Can you get the picture down the street? He has all this liberty and freedom that he finds in Christ. He sees this sign on this temple door, porterhouse steak, 10 cents a pound. Hey, man, you can't beat a deal like that. But in order to get the steak, he had to go inside. And he went inside, and then and so you took a riot, you went into the place where they worshipped in the temple, worshipped the idols, you took a left, you go to the butcher shop. So, it, you know, somebody on the outside didn't know, didn't know what he did. They just saw him go in. He goes in, he takes a left, he goes down to the butcher shop, he gets him a porterhouse steak, several packages of it for 10 cents a pound, comes out with this under his arm. There's a guy across the street. He's thinking to himself, he's a member of the same fellowship, same church. I, didn't I just see old Fred go in that temple? Didn't I just see this brother in Christ going in there where they worship idols? And when he comes out, he sees under his arm this package of meat, and he, he says, how could you do that? And Fred says, freedom in Christ so that you have one who is judging and you have another who is despising his brother because he's judging. Now, what kind of a church do you have when you got that kind of stuff going on? Now, look at the two groups with, with me. In chapter 14, now watch this real care, very carefully. In chapter 14, verse 1, he's speaking of the weak. He talks about the weak. Well, look at chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Now we who are strong, and he's talking about the strong. So the groups are divided into the weak and the strong. Now, what is Paul? What is he? Answer back. He's the what? Strong. He says, Now we who are strong. Now, you say tonight, I'd like to be like the Apostle Paul. Wouldn't it be great to have a church full of people like the Apostle Paul? Be careful when you say that. Because the Apostle Paul... It says, I am of the group that is strong. We already know what this group is. It's the group who does not live by a list of don'ts. It's the people who have a liberty to live their Christian life out on the basis of what they understand God would have them to live, how, they, how God would have them to live. Now, what you've got when you've got a church full of Apostle Pauls is a group of people who live on the basis of liberty, who don't go around judging other people because they don't live like we do. See what I'm saying? Now, I want, I want you to hang in here because I want to show you something. There. Now, what Paul wants us to know is that, he wants to make clear is that there is a temptation when you, of the group who live on the basis of liberty, that to flaunt your liberty. Now, if you feel that you can live your Christian life and, and not live on the basis bunch of, of a list that people have drawn up about how a Christian should be. I mean, don't flaunt that. Don't flaunt it. And to those who are weak, he says, don't judge. Stop focusing on the strong. Focus on the Lord. In a little paperback book, I was trying to find the author to it tonight. I do know the title, How to Be Religious Without Trying. It's a commentary on the book of Romans. It's really for young people. It was 
a commentary we used years ago when Romans was the January Bible study. In this, there's this little illustration. This guy comes up to his friend who has bought a new car. And his Christian church member friend comes up to him and says, Mac, don't you think you're spending a little too much money on cars? He's a, he's a weaker brother. He has a list, you see. And Mac says, no. And his friend says, don't you think that money could have been better used in the leprosy fund? I mean, we start, we have a building fund here, and, and you know, you drive a new car? Couldn't that money have been given to the building fund? And you driving a new car? What Paul is saying is, you who are weak and you've got a problem with, with lists and rules, don't keep your eyes on the lifestyle of those people and judge them. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Now regarding diet, look in verse 3. He said that what, what our temptation is to regard with contempt those who, who are weak, that is, to discount them. It's, you know, isn't it true that we have a tendency to ignore those people that, that have a little problem with the things we do? Like it or, you know, I'm going to do this whether you like it or not. Lump it, like it or lump it, I'm going to do it anyway. With your hand holding a place here, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me show you something. Chapter 8, just the next verse, next book over, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Look, he says, Now concerning, here are some pages turning, so I'll wait. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. He's saying, We know that there's nothing to this matter of eating meat offered to idols. He said, The problem is that that knowledge makes you arrogant. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying we know that it doesn't hurt to eat that meat that's offered in those pagan temples because there is no other God. And these people are bringing this meat. They're just giving, putting meat and placing it before some stone or wooden images. We know that these are not really gods. We know that, so it doesn't bother us to eat this meat. For even if there were so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, little g, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being defiled. What's this? Look at here. But food will not commend us to God. Neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. You know what he's saying? He's saying you're not going to gain any points with God if you eat that meat or if you don't eat it. That's not going to gain you any points with God. Watch this. You can have a list as long as your arm of the things you don't do. That's not going to gain you any favor with God whatsoever. And if you do all of these things that other people are worried about, that doesn't gain you any points either. And it doesn't make you any less. But he says, but take care lest this liberty, look at this, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? This is what he's saying. He's saying, now watch very carefully that you don't flaunt your liberty and remember that you have a responsibility to those around you not to cause them to stumble. There's a, there's a thin line in there. Now let's go back to Romans 14. Let's get this thing done right away. We look at verses 5 and 6. He talks about days. Now, how many of you were raised in families that just kept Sunday just sacred? I mean, you didn't hardly, you couldn't hardly breathe. No fun on Sunday. No way. Don't work on Sunday. No kind of work. Don't go to, don't shop on Sunday. I remember the first time I went to the grocery store on Sunday, I was scared to death. I was was afraid, I was afraid God would strike me dead. Don't shop on Sunday. Don't eat in restaurants where people uh, have to work, you know, to feed, you know, people on Sunday. Don't do that. One of the bitterest, most vitriolic letters I've ever received. I got right up here on my desk back here in this office one Sunday afternoon. And a guy wrote this letter to me, unsigned, just ripping me because he saw me eating in a restaurant after church on Sunday. Now, some of you grew up in that kind of a thing, didn't you? Man, don't go, you know, don't do anything on Sunday. Sundays are for naps. The older I get, the better I like that. Sundays are for napping. Nothing else. You take a nap on Sunday. Now, why why do you feel that way? Let me tell you, there are three reasons. Now, watch this carefully. Parental influence. It's the way your parents taught you. Secondly, you're a group, you, you, you fit into the group called the weaker brethren because you were saved out of a painful past. Now let me explain what I'm saying there. Persons who come out of a past of alcoholism, they despise alcohol in every way some of them do. And to see a Christian drink a glass of wine, they just can't stand the idea of it. And sometimes we're like we are because of a conviction God has given you. Now listen to me. If God has given you a conviction about what you are supposed to do and not supposed to do, I'll defend you to the death of your right to live that way. But I'll fight you if you try to impose that on me without scriptural support. I have a problem with people who say I have a message from God that this is the way everybody ought to live. And there's no scriptural support for that. If God has given you that, then you need to live like that and I'll defend you in that till till I die. But don't impose that on me. Now, for some people, to have a television... It's terrible. That's fine. If that's a God-given conviction, take that boob tube and throw it as far as you can throw it. But don't impose that conviction on me without scriptural support. You understand what I'm saying? Now, this is what we're talking about here. Now, there are three principles. One is found in verse 7. Here's the principle. Just write this down. We'll get out of here. All members of the body of Christ are interrelated. We're linked together whether we like it or not. 
I read somewhere the ancient Gauls, when they went into battle, they tied themselves together so that they died together, they lived together. Whether we like it or not, listen to me, when you come into the fellowship of a church, you link yourself, you are interrelated to everybody in this church. Don't you dare forget that. It does matter how you, how you live, how you act. It affects those around you. It does matter if you judge. It means that we are all to involve ourselves, to entangle ourselves with each other's welfare and to do so with the aid of the Holy Spirit like mountain climbers who lash themselves together for the mutual assistance, assuring that they are together in success or failure. We are saying that whatever the state or the condition of the one, it will become, it will be borne by the group for we're in this thing together. You hear me? Whatever the state or the condition of the person who sits on the back pew of the church, whatever that state or condition, we all bear that. We are linked together. We need to remember that. I just finished reading this touching little book called Lament for a Son. It's written by one of the great contemporary philosophers, a man by the name of Nicholas Walterstor. His son was a student in Switzerland, a 25-year-old boy, and he loved to mountain climb. And one afternoon, he went out to climb this mountain alone and died climbing this mountain. And Nicholas Walterstorff has this book called Lament for a Son. I, it's the most touching book. And he just keeps going on over and over. Why did he go out? to climb that mountain alone. We don't live alone, the Scripture says. We are linked together, and we rise or we fall together. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows a sympathizing tear. We're linked together. Number two, we're all members under the same head, we're all members on the same head. I get my orders from the same God you get your orders from. Now listen to me. I don't want to say this crudely or, or abrasively. I'd just soon get my orders from the Lord. It's maybe a little better, just a little more. I'd like it a little better get my orders from the Lord, not from you. I have a friend who, he gets this letter every now and then from this little lady. And she says, don't you think you ought to <clears throat> fill in the blank? One day he, he said something, made a mistake in his sermon. Don't you think you ought to apologize for what you said? He wrote her back a note, one word, no. <laughs> don't think I should. Can you imagine trying to answer to everybody's list? Just relax. We'll answer to God. Number three. We're all, as members, we all face the same judgment. Now look at this carefully. He says that whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. You know what he's saying? He's saying that, the, that God is sovereign in two realms, in the realm of life and in the realm of death. And he's saying that we are responsible to God in life and we are accountable to God in death and that everybody stands before the bema. And he's talking about the judgment seat that, that every Christian shall stand before. And he's saying this. He's saying, now, 
You don't need to judge somebody and try to fit that person into your mold. Because he's going to answer to God just like you are. Ellie Maxwell has this statement. I'll read it and then I'm through. Listen to it. He says, It is Christians only who are in view here. And the law of requital is so exact that everyone is said to get back to carry off for himself the very things done in the body. In this world, we've not seen the last of anything. We shall all be manifested before the judgment seat of Christ. All that we've hidden shall be revealed. The books are shut now, but they will be opened then. The things we've done in the body will come back to us, whether good or bad. Every pious thought, every thought of sin, every secret prayer, every secret curse, every unknown deed of charity, and every hidden deed of selfishness, we will see them all again. And perhaps forgotten, we've forgotten some of them. We shall all have to acknowledge that they are our own and take them to ourselves. Let me come still closer home. What shall I say of my own calculating love, my evasion of the cross, measured service, my holding back and holding others back? No man lives to himself. My influence goes on and on and on. For things good and bad, I must give an account. Arm me with jealous care as in thy sight to live, and, O thy servant, Lord, prepare a strict account to give. For every one of us will have a judge, and it won't be one of you. Let's pray together. Father, we are not intimidated by the fact that we'll stand before God to give an account. We are intimidated by the fact that we don't know how to live out our life as we should. Some of us have our list. Others of us have our arrogance. All of us do not care for one another like we should. And I pray that you'll bind us together in a love that is deeper than our own pleasures and our own desires, our own ambitions, that we might live for one another till the end. Because I pray in Jesus' name. We're going to have given invitation. We're going to invite you to come tonight. Some of you need to come. Give your life to Christ, perhaps. Some to join the church. Some to recommit their life to Christ. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.